Chapter Five of the Upas Tree by Florence L. Barclay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Five: The Infant of Prague. Two men in a flat at Leipzig sat on either side of a tall porcelain stove. The small door in the stove stood open, letting a ruddy glow shine from within a poor substitute for the open fires blazing merrily in england on this chill november evening yet giving visible evidence of the heat contained within those cool-looking blue and white embossed tiles the room itself was a curious mixture of the taste of the leipzig landlady who owned it and had furnished it and of the englishman studying music who was its temporary tenant the high-backed sofa upholstered in red velvet stood stiffly against the wall awaiting the guest of honour who never arrived it served however as a resting-place for a violin and a pile of music while on the opposite side of the room partly eclipsed by a fancy picture of goethe stood a chamber organ open and displaying a long row of varied stops books and music were piled upon every available flat space saving the table upon which lay the remains of supper of the three easy-chairs placed in a semicircle near the stove, two were occupied, but against the empty chair in the centre, its dark brown polished surface reflecting the glow of the fire, leaned a beautiful old violoncello. The metal point of its foot made a slight dent in the parquet floor. The younger of the two men sat well forward, elbows on knees, eyes alight with excitement, intently gazing at the cello. The other lay back in his chair, his thin, sensitive fingers carefully placed tip to tip, his deep-set eyes scrutinizing his companion. When he spoke, his voice was calm and deliberate, his manner exceedingly quiet. His method of conversation was of the kind which drew out the full confidence of others, while at the same time carefully insinuating, rather than frankly expressing, ideas of his own. "'What a rum fellow you must be, West!' to pay a hundred and fifty pounds for an instrument you have no notion of playing. Is it destined to be kept under lock and key in a glass case? Certainly not, said Ronald West. I shall be able to play it when I try, and I shall try as soon as I get home. Give us a sample here. No, not here. I particularly wish to play it first with Helen, in the room where I told her a cello was the instrument I had always wanted. Oh, I say, isn't it a beauty? Look at those curves and that wonderful polish, like the richest brown of the very darkest horse chestnut you ever saw in a bursting burr. See how the silver strings shine in the firelight against the black ebony of the fingerboard. It was made at Prague, and it is a hundred and fifty years old. I call it the infant of Prague. Why the infant? Because you have to be so very careful not to bump its head as you carry it about. Also, isn't there a verse somewhere, about an infant of days who is a hundred years old and young at that? Helen will love the infant. She will polish it with a silk handkerchief and make a bed for it on the sofa. I shan't write to her about it. I shall bring it home as a surprise. He took his eyes from the cello and looked across at Helen's cousin. But Aubrey Treherne instantly shifted his gaze to the unconscious infant. Tell me how you came across it. There is no doubt you have been fortunate enough to pick up an instrument of extraordinary value and beauty. Ah, you realize that? cried Ronald. Good. Well, you shall hear exactly what happened. I arrived here early this evening, put up at a hotel, and sallied out to interview the publishers. I had a mass of copy to show them, because I have been writing incessantly the whole way home. Curiously enough, since I left Africa, 
I have scarcely needed any sleep. Snatches of a half an hour seem all I require. It is convenient when one has a vast amount of work to get through in a short space of time. Very convenient, just the reverse of sleeping sickness. Rather, I was never fitter in my life, as I told Dick Cameron. Aubrey Treherne glanced at the bright, burning eyes and flushed face, the feverish blood showing, even through the tan of Africa. Yes, you look jolly fit, he said. Who is Dick Cameron? A great chum of mine. We met, as boys in Edinburgh, when we were in school together. He is the son of Colonel Cameron, of Transvaal fame, killed while leading a charge. Dick has done awfully well in the medical, passed all the necessary exams, and taken every possible degree. He is now looking out for a practice, and meanwhile a big man in London has sent him out to investigate one of these queer water-friction cures, professes to cure cataract and cancer and every known disease by simply sitting you in a tub and rubbing you down with a dishcloth. Dick Cameron says, Hello. Why are we talking of Dick Cameron? I thought I was telling you about the cello. You are telling me about the cello, said Aubrey quietly. But in order to arrive at the cello, we had to hear about your visit to the publishers with your mass of manuscript, which resulted from having acquired in Central Africa the useful habit of not needing more than half an hour's sleep in the twenty-four, which, possibly, Dick Cameron did not consider sufficient. Doctors are apt to be fatty in such matters, whereupon you, naturally, told him you were perfectly fit. Ah, yes, I remember, said Ronnie. Am I spinning rather a yarn? Not at all, my dear fellow. Do not hurry. We have the whole evening before us, night if necessary. You can put in your half-hour at any time, I suppose, and I can dispense with sleep for once. It is not often one has a chance of spending a night in the company of a noted author, an African traveller straight from the jungle, and the man who has married one's favourite cousin. I am all delighted attention. What did your friend Dick Cameron say? Well, I met him as I was hurrying back to the hotel, carrying the infant, who did not appear to advantage in the exceedingly plain brown canvas bag which was all they could give me at Zimmerman's. When I get home I shall consult Helen, and we shall order the best case procurable. Naturally, probably Helen will advise a bassinet by night, and a perambulator by day. Ronnie looked perplexed. Why a bassinet? he said. The infant, you know. Oh, ah, yes, I see. Well, of course, I wanted to introduce the infant properly to Dick Cameron, but he objected when I began taking it out of its bag in the street. He suggested it might take cold. It certainly is a dank day. Also, that there are so many bylaws and regulations in Leipzig, connected with things you may not do in the streets, that probably if you took a cello out of its case and stood admiring it in the midst of the crowded thoroughfare, you would get run in by a policeman. Dick said, Arrest of the infant of Prague in the streets of Leipzig, would make just the kind of sensational headlines beloved by the newspapers. I realized that he was right. It would have distressed Helen, besides being a most unfortunate way for her to first hear of the infant. Helen is a great stickler for respectability. Aubrey Treherne's pale countenance turned a shade paler. His thin lips curved into the semblance of a smile. Ah, yes, he said, of course. Helen is a great stickler for respectability. Well... So you gave up undressing your infant in the street? Again Ronnie's eager face took on a look of perplexity. I did not propose undressing it, he said. I only wanted to take it out of its bag. I see. Quite a simple matter. Well, owing to our absurd police regulations you were prevented from doing this. What happened next? 
Dick suggested that we should go into his rooms. Arrived there, he ceased to take any interest in my cello, clapped me into a chair, and stuck a beastly thermometer into my mouth. Doctors are such enthusiasts, murmured Aubrey. They can never let their own particular trade alone. I suppose he also felt your pulse and looked at your tongue. Rather. Then he said I had no business to be walking about with a temperature of a hundred and three. I was so much annoyed that I promptly smashed the thermometer, and we had a fine chase after the quicksilver. You never saw anything like it. It ran like a rabbit in and out of the nooks and corners of the chair, until at last it disappeared through a crack in the floor, went to ground, you know. Doesn't Helen look well on horseback? Charming. I suppose you easily convinced your friend that his diagnosis was rubbish? Of course I did. I told him I had never felt better in my life, but I drank the stuff he gave me, simply to save further bother. Also another dose, which he brought to the hotel. Then he insisted on leaving a bottle out of which I am to take a dose every three hours on the journey home. I did not know Dick was such a crank. Probably it is the result of sitting in a tub and being scrubbed with a dishcloth. Did he know you were coming here? Yes, he picked up my pocket-book, found your address, and made a note of it. He said he should probably look us up about ten o'clock this evening. I told him I might be here pretty late. I did not know you were going to be so kind as to fetch my things from the hotel and put me up. You are really most— Delighted, my dear fellow. Honored, said Aubrey Treherne. Now tell me about the finding of the cello. I interviewed the publishers, and I hope it was all right, but they seemed rather hurried and vague, and anxious to get me off their premises. No doubt I shall fare better in courteous little Holland. Then I went on to Zimmerman's to choose Helen's organ. I found exactly what she wanted, and at the price she wished. On my way downstairs I found myself in a large room full of violoncellos, dozens of them. They were hanging in glass cases. They were ranged along the top. Then suddenly I felt impelled to look to the top of the highest cabinet, and there I saw the infant. I knew instantly that that was the cello I must have. It seemed mine already. It seemed as if it had always been mine. I asked to be shown some violoncellos. They produced two or three in which I took no interest. And then I said, Get down that dark brown one, third from the end. They lifted it down, and from the moment I touched it, I knew it must be mine. They told me it was made at Prague a hundred and fifty years ago, and its price was three thousand marks. Luckily I had my checkbook in my pocket, also my card, Helen's card, my publisher's letter of introduction to the firm here, and my own letter of credit from my bankers. So they expressed themselves willing to take my check. I wrote it then and there, and marched out with the infant. I first called it the infant on the stairs, as we were leaving Zimmerman's, because I almost bumped its head. Isn't it a beauty? Undoubtedly it is. They put on a new set of the very best strings, continued Ronnie, supplied me with a good bow, and threw in a cake of rosin. What did you pay for the organ? inquired Aubrey Treherne. Twenty-four pounds. Helen would not have a more expensive one. She is always telling me not to be extravagant. That, my dear boy, invariably happens to an impecunious fellow who marries a rich wife. Ronnie flushed. I am impecunious no longer, he said. During the past twelve months I have made, by my books, a larger income than my wife's. I can well believe it, said Aubrey cordially. But I suppose she can never forget the fact that, when you married her, she paid your debts. Ronald West sprang to his feet. "'Confound you!' he said violently. "'What do you mean? Helen never paid my debts. She found them out, I admit, but I paid every one of them myself, with the first check I received from my publishers. I demand an explanation of your statement.' 
The two other members of the trio around the stove appeared completely unmoved by the fury of the young man who had leapt to his feet. The infant of Prague leaned calmly against its chair, reflecting the fire in its polished surface, and pressing its one sharp foot into the parquet. Arbury smiled, depreciatingly, and waved Ronnie back to his seat. "'My dear fellow, I am sure I beg your pardon. My cousin certainly gave her family to understand that she had paid your debts.' No doubt this was not the case. We all know that women are somewhat given to exaggeration and inaccuracy. Think no more of it. Ronnie sat down moodily in his chair. It was unlike Helen, he said, and it was a lie. I shall find out with whom it originated, but you are a good fellow to take my word about it at once. I am obliged to you, Treherne. Don't mention it, West. Men rarely lie to one another. On the other hand, women rarely speak the truth. What will my good cousin say to one hundred and fifty pounds being paid for a cello? It will be no business of hers, said Ronnie angrily. I can do as I choose with my own earnings. I doubt it, smiled Aubrey Treherne. The man who married my cousin Helen was bound to surrender his independence and creep under her thumb. I am grateful to you for having saved me from that fate, as no doubt she has told you. She refused me shortly before she accepted you. Ronald's start of surprise proved at once to Aubrey his complete ignorance of the whole matter. "'I had no idea you were ever in love with my wife,' he said. "'Nor was I, my dear fellow,' sneered Aubrey Treherne. "'Others, besides yourself, were after your wife's money.' A sense of impotence seized Ronald, in a nightmare grip. Indignant and furious, he yet felt absolutely unable to contradict or to explain. Suddenly he seemed to hear Helen's voice saying earnestly, "'My cousin Aubrey is not a good man, Ronnie. He is not a man you should trust.' This vivid remembrance of Helen brought him to his senses. "'I prefer not to discuss my wife,' he said with quiet dignity, "'nor my relations with her. Let us talk of something else.' "'By all means, my dear fellow,' replied Aubrey, "'you must pardon the indiscretion of cousinly interest. Tell me of your new book. Have you settled upon a title?' but the instinct of authorship now shielded Ronnie. "'I never talk of my books excepting to Helen until they are finished,' he said. "'Quite right,' agreed Aubrey, cordially. "'But you might tell me why this one took you to Central Africa. Is it a book of travels?' "'No, it is a love-story, but the scene is laid in wild places. Ah, such places! One cannot possibly understand until one gets there and does it, what it is like to leave civilization behind, to crawl into long grass thirteen feet high. It sounds weirdly fascinating, remarked Aubrey. So unusual a setting must mean a remarkable plot. It is the strongest thing I have done yet, said Ronnie with enthusiasm. Aubrey smiled, surveying Ronnie's eager face with slow enjoyment. He was mentally recalling phrases from reviews he had written for various literary columns on Ronnie's work. Already he began wording the terse sentences in which he would point out the feebleness and lack of literary merit in the strongest thing Ronnie had done yet. It might be well to know some more about it. "'It would be very unlike your other books,' he suggested. "'Yes,' explained Ronnie, expanding. "'You see, they were all absolutely English, just of our own set and our own surroundings. I wanted something new. I couldn't go on letting my hero make love in an English garden.' "'If you wanted a variety,' suggested Aubrey to Hearn, "'you might have let him make love in another man's garden. "'Stolen fruits are sweet. "'There is always a fascination about trespassing.' "'No, thank you,' said Ronnie. "'That would be paradise lost.' 
"'Or Paradise Regained,' murmured Aubrey. "'I think not. Besides, Helen reads my books.' "'Oh, I see,' sneered Aubrey. "'So your wife draws the line?' "'I don't know what you mean,' replied Ronnie. "'Falsehood, frailty, and infidelity do not appeal to me as subjects for romance. But if they did, I certainly should not feel free to put a line into one of my own books which I should be ashamed to see my own wife reading.' "'Oh, safe and excellent standard,' mocked Aubrey Treherne. "'No wonder you go down with the British public.' "'I think, if you don't mind,' said Ronald with some heat, we will cease to discuss my books and my public. Then there is but one subject left to us, smiled Aubrey, the infant of Prague. Let us concentrate our attention upon this entirely congenial topic. I wonder how long this dear child has remained dumb. I have seen many fine instruments in my time, West, but I am inclined to think your cello is the finest I have yet come across. Do you mind if I tune it and try the strings? Ronnie's pleasure and enthusiasm were easily rekindled. Do, he said, I am grateful. I do not even know the required notes. Aubrey, leaning forward, carefully lifted the instrument, resting it against his knees. He took a tuning-fork from his pocket. It is tuned in fifths, he said. The open strings are A, D, G, C. You can remember them because they stand for Allowable Delights Grow Commonplace, or, read the other way up, Courage Gains Desired Aims. With practiced skill he rapidly tightened the four strings into harmony, then, after carefully rosining the bow, rasped it with uncertain touch across them. The infant squealed as if in dire pain. Ronnie winced, obviously restraining himself with an effort from snatching his precious cello out of Aubrey's hands. It did not strike him as peculiar that a man who played the violin with ease should not be able to draw a clear tone from the open strings of a cello. I don't seem to make much of it, said Aubrey. The cello is a difficult instrument to play, and requires long practice. Again he rasped the bow across the strings. The infant's wail of anguish gained in volume. Ronnie sprang up, holding out eager hands. Let me try, he said. I must be able to make a better sound than that. As he placed the cello between his knees, a look of rapt content came into his face. He slipped his left hand up and down the neck letting his fingers glide gently along the strings. Aubrey watched him narrowly. Ronnie lifted the bow. Then he paused. A sudden remembrance seemed to arrest the action in mid-air. He laid his left hand firmly on the shoulder of the infant, out of reach of the tempting strings. "'I am not going to play,' he said. "'The very first time I really play must be in the studio, and Helen must be there. But I will just sound the open strings.' He looked down upon the cello and waited the light of expectation brightening in his face. Aubrey Treherne noted the remarkable correctness of the position he had unconsciously assumed. Then Ronnie, raising the bow, drew it with unfaltering touch across the silver depths of lower sea. A rich, full note, rising, falling, vibrating, filling the room. The infant of Prague was singing. A master hand had waked its voice once more. Ronnie's head swam, a hot mist was before his eyes. His breath came in short sobs. He had completely forgotten the sardonic face of his wife's cousin in the chair opposite. Then the hot mist cleared. He raised the bow once more, and drew it across G. G merged into D without a pause. Then, with a strong triumphant sweep, he sounded A. The four open strings of the cello had given forth their full sweetness and power. Helen! 
Oh, Helen, said Ronnie. Then he looked up and saw Aubrey Treherne. He laughed rather unsteadily. I thought I was at home, he said. For the moment it seemed as if I must be at home. I was experiencing the purest joy I have known since I left Helen. What do you think of my cello, man? Isn't it wonderful? It is very wonderful, said Aubrey Treherne. Your infant is all you hoped. The tone is perfect. But what is still more wonderful is that you, who believe yourself never to have handled a cello before, can set the strings vibrating with such unerring skill, such complete mastery. Of course, to me, the mystery is no mystery. The reason of it all is perfectly clear. What is the reason of it all? inquired Ronnie, eagerly. In a former existence, dear boy, said Aubrey Treherne, slowly, you were a great master of the cello. Probably the infant of Prague was your favorite instrument. It called to you from its high place in the cello room at Zimmermann's, as it has been calling to you for years. Only, at last it made you hear. It was your own, and you knew it. You would have bought it, had its price been a thousand pounds. You could not have left the place without the infant in your possession. Ronald's feverish flush deepened. His eyes grew more burningly bright. What an extraordinary idea, he said. I don't think Helen would like it, and I am perfectly certain Helen would not believe it. You cannot refuse to believe a truth because it does not happen to appeal to your wife, said Aubrey. Grasp it clearly yourself, then educate her up to a proper understanding of the matter. All of us who are worth anything in this world have lived before, not once, nor twice, but many times. We bring the varied experiences of all previous existences unconsciously to bear upon and to enrich this one. Have you not often heard the expression, a born musician? What do we mean by that? Why, a man born with a knowledge, a sense, an experience of music, who does not require to go through the mill of learning all the rudiments before music can express itself through him, because the soul of music is in him. He plays by instinct. Some folks call it inspiration. Technical skill he may have to acquire. His fingers are new to it. The understanding of notation he may have to master again. The brain he uses consciously is also a fresh construction. But the subconscious self, the ego of the man, the real eternal soul of him, leaps back with joy to the thing he has done perfectly before. He is a born musician, just as John the Baptist was a born prophet, because, into the little body prepared by Zacharias and Elizabeth, came the great ego of Elijah reincarnate, to reappear as a full-grown prophet on the banks of the Jordan, the very spot from which he had been caught away, his life-work only half accomplished, nine centuries before. Even our good Helen, if she knows her Bible, could hardly question this, remembering whom it was who said, If ye will receive it, this is Elijah which was for to come. For they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. "'Great Scott!' exclaimed Ronnie. "'What a theory! But indeed Helen would question it, and not only so, but she would be exceedingly upset and very much annoyed. Then Helen would fully justify the if of the greatest of all teachers. She would come under the heading of those who refuse to receive a truth, however clearly and unmistakably expressed. "'Lor!' exclaimed Ronnie, in undisguised perplexity. "'You have completely cornered me. But then I never set up for being a theologian.' No, you are a born artist and musician. Music, tone, sound, color, vibrate in every page of your romances. 
Had your parents taught you harmony, the piano and the fiddle, your music would have burst forth along its normal lines. As they merely taught you the alphabet and grammar, your creative faculty turned to literature. You wrote romances full of music, instead of composing music full of romance. It is a distinction without a difference, but, now that you have found your mislaid cello, and I am teaching you to know yourself, you will do both. Ronald stared across at Aubrey. His head was throbbing. Every moment he seemed to become more certain that he had indeed, many times before, held the infant of Prague between his knees. But there was a weird, uncanny feeling in the room. Helen seemed to walk in, to seat herself in the empty chair, and leading forward, to look at him steadily, with her clear, earnest eyes. She seemed to repeat impressively, "'Aubrey is not a good man, Ronnie. He is not a man you should trust.' "'Well?' asked Aubrey, at last. "'Do you recognize the truth?' Then, with an effort, Ronnie answered as he believed Helen would have answered, and her face beside him seemed to smile approval. "'It sounds a plausible theory,' he said slowly, "'and it may possibly be a truth.' but it is not a truth required by us now. Our obvious duty in the present is to live this life out to its fullest and best, regarding it as a time of preparation for the next. Aubrey's thin lips framed the word rubbish, but checking it unuttered, substituted, quite right, this existence is a preparation for the next, just as that which preceded was a preparation for this. Then Ronnie ceased to express Helen, and gave vent to an idea of his own. It would make a jolly old muddle of all our relationships, he said. Not at all, replied Aubrey. It merely readjusts them, compensating for disappointments in the present by granting us the assurance of past possessions, and the expectation of future enjoyment. In the life which preceded this, Helen was probably my wife, while you were a beautiful old person in diamond shoe-buckles, knee-breeches, and old lace, who played the cello at our wedding. Confound you! cried Ronnie, in sudden fury, springing up and swinging the cello above his head, as if about to bring it down with a crashing blow upon Aubrey. Damned old shoe-buckle yourself! Helen was never your wife! More likely you blacked her boots and mine!" "'Oh, hush!' smiled Aubrey, in contemptuous amusement. Excellent young men who make innocent love in rose-gardens never say damn. And in those days, dear boy, we did not use shoe-blackening. Pray calm yourself and sit down. You are upsetting the internal arrangements of your infant. If you swing a baby violently about, it makes it sick. Any old gamp will tell you that. Ronnie sat down, but solely because his knees suddenly gave way beneath him. The floor on which he was standing seemed to become deep sand. Keep calm, sneered Aubrey Treherne. Perhaps you would like to know my excellent warrant for concluding that Helen was my wife in a former life? She came very near to being my wife in this. She was engaged to me before she ever met you, my boy. Had it not been for the interference of that strong-minded shrew, Mrs. Dalmain, she would have married me. I had kissed my cousin Helen, as much as I pleased, before you ever touched her hand. The incandescent lights grew blood-red, leaping up and down, in wild, bewildering frolic. Then they steadied suddenly, Helen's calm, lovely figure, in a shaft of sunlight, reappeared in the empty chair. Ronnie handed the infant to her, rose, staggered across the intervening space, and struck Aubrey Treherne a violent blow on the mouth. Aubrey gripped his arms, and for a moment the two men glared at each other. Then Ronnie's knees gave way again, his feet sank deeply into the sand, 
and Aubrey, forcing him violently backward, pinned him down in his chair. "'I would kill you for this,' he whispered, his face very close to Ronnie's, blood streaming from his lips. "'I would kill you for this, you clown. But I mean to kiss Helen again, and life, while it holds that prospect, is too sweet to risk losing for the mere pleasure of wiping you out. Otherwise I would kill you now, with my two hands.' Then a black, pulsating curtain rolled, in impenetrable folds, between Ronnie and that livid, bleeding face, and he sank away, down, 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 into silent depths of darkness and of solitude. End of chapter 5